Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets Up listeners? Back here for episode number 59 of the Mets Up podcast. Of course, I'm your co-host, Nick Mark, here with James Shiano, Jeter Had No Range, talking about all the New York Mets news that's been going on. It's been kind of a weirdly quiet but also loud week in Mets baseball world because it's just a lot of the same old, same old that we've been hearing all offseason long. Looking for a president of baseball ops, looking for a GM, looking for a manager. What are the Mets going to do? Steve Cohen, everything. He's getting a casino at City Field. Whatever it is, there's a whole lot of nothing going right now in New York Mets baseball world, but we will still talk about it. We're going to talk about Buster Olney. We're going to have a good like 15-minute session of just ripping on Buster Olney because that guy stinks. So let's talk about him a little bit. Uh, we fired Zach Scott as well, so that's another thing to talk about. He is officially out from the New York Mets. Kind of leads into the whole Buster Olney thing. We got a Jacob DeGrom article about his injury and what kind of exacerbated that whole thing, at least in his mind. We're going to be grading players, and then we will end it up with our president of baseball operations talk because there have been some updates there. So if you guys are enjoying this, no YouTube video this time because me and James are currently in Arizona at the Fall League. Uh, we don't have the capabilities to do like a 45-minute video right now. So no video, but listen to us on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you find us. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, at MetsUp. Um, and I think that's basically all the plugs we have now. So well, Follow you on Twitter, Tarathnik, Mark with a C. Follow me, James Shiano, on Twitter, at Jeter Had No Range. Mark just missed that for some reason. We're a little bit off kilter right now. We're actually sharing a microphone. We don't have the regular video thing where we're looking at each other straight on. We're sitting like next to each other without any video. So it's a little bit of an awkward situation, but... We're still here to give you guys some great Mets content. And we have a lot of great Mets content today. And it all starts with Zach Scott officially being fired as the Mets interim general manager, acting general manager, whatever he was. Yeah, I think it was acting. And it's 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 the right move. Like, he should not be with his organization. He no longer is, which I think is a good decision. While there might have been some moves that people liked that he made. I mean, you can look at the Javi Baez. You can look at the Rich Hill trades. Those were successful. Any way you look at them, they were successful. But that's about it, and he's made a lot of bad decisions, as we know. Not just on the field, but off the field as well. Yeah, that's a big problem, especially given what else has happened surrounding the Mets over the last, like, 16 months. And I don't think that you can really say Zach Scott was a, a, a bad baseball person, because he still has, like, decent accolades and, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, references around the league saying he's done a good job. And I'm sure he will get another front office job after this, but... I don't think there's any problem with firing a guy who you were unsure about who also was drunk driving. Like, that's a really good one plus one equals two. Just get him out. Yeah, I mean, the Mets didn't win on the field this year. He made that boneheaded decision off the field. If you can't make the proper decisions for your own life and you're putting other people's life at at risk, I don't necessarily trust you with the keys to the New York Mets as well. And I feel like that's kind of the bigger overarching narrative that isn't getting talked about by some of the national media that's covering this is that if you don't have the ability to make a responsible decision for yourself, how are you going to be able to make the right decision really for a baseball team at the end of the day? Especially when a lot of these people in the national media at the time of Zach Scott's arrest were banging the drum. The guy should be fired. This was just adding to the Mets' dysfunction. They had to clean house from all of these uh, types of characters. So that's why it was so vexing when on Tuesday Buster Olney told the world that firing Zach Scott was just adding to the Mets' instability. And I think that we should read that tweet out right now because it really, in retrospect, makes no sense, especially when you compare it to some of the other things that Buster Olney has said, specifically about Zach Scott. All right, so here's what Buster Olney tweeted about. He was lauding another article you said by the New York Times, but essentially here's what Buster Olney's words are. At the precise time the Mets needed front office help, they fire Zach Scott. They could have simply shifted him into a role with a lower profile, the job for which he was hired, and drawn on his knowledge as they began to reshape for the team for 2022. 
And while maybe in a different scenario, I think Buster could be right, there's a, we got a lot of proof here and a lot of, you know, I guess like backtracking from Buster because he has said a lot of different things. This is a weird take to have on November 2nd. Especially because on September, it was first, second, or third. I think the tab might still be up on your computer, that article. It was the day, a day or two after Zach Scott was arrested with a DUI. Buster only wrote a scathing article about the Mets' future front office shakeup. Because it's still September, the season was still going on. There was still some type of possibility that the Mets could have made a miraculous run to the postseason. And Buster acknowledged that, even though, again, it was very unlikely. But he literally said in this article... And I quote, the New York Mets will be justified in firing Zach Scott. Yeah. Two months ago. And like I even found a little excerpt, too, from that article two months ago where Buster was basically talking about how this is like inexcusable what he's doing and that not only is he making bad decisions off the field, but the Mets on the field have been extraordinarily disappointing. Here's what he said exactly. The front office has been disastrous, and that's not even taking the baseball part of the baseball business into account, which, for the Mets, has been extraordinarily disappointing. I mean, those words alone should get a GM fired, and then you add on top the DWI, there's no reason for him to be there. Like, I'm not saying Zach Scott's a terrible person, but I mean, people make mistakes, and luckily there was no actual, like, consequences that happened from this, but... He clearly is just not the guy to be in charge of this baseball team right now. Definitely. And this is also coming on the heels of the horrific Henry Rugg story from late Sunday night, early Monday morning. That's really kind of shaking up the sports world. It's a real like harrowing example of what the consequences that junk driving could really have and why it, there should be basically a zero-tolerance policy with it. But for some reason, Buster only harped on the fact that the Mets should not be congratulated for firing Zach Scott simply because the team does not have a zero-tolerance policy regarding drunk driving. And not that there's ever been any other instances of people in the Mets organization that we know about in the recent uh, past in regards to drunk driving, but when people, regular people, some people with decent following on Twitter, and you too, were responding to Buster Olney saying this was a ridiculous take that you're giving the Mets shit for firing a guy because... A big reason, I think, was because of his crime, for lack of a better word. He continued to say that it was disingenuous because the Mets would not do the same for a star player who uh, was charged with a similar crime of drunk, drunk, drunk driving. Buster only said this maybe 15, 20 times, responding to random people all over the internet all day long. It was a real shocking response for against a team who... Fired someone for doing something wrong. It's crazy. And it was weird because Buster only he typically is anti-player. If you go back through a lot of his tweets and a lot of his articles, even back to the COVID season, he was a big proponent of the players should take anything to play because they're the players and we need baseball and don't worry about getting paid. He's big anti-player, so it doesn't shock me that he has this take of like, well, they should fire a star player too. But the difference between Zach Scott and a player in this scenario is that the player is valuable. Zach Scott is replaceable. So there's no reason to have that kind of guy stick around. The player also will have a contract that is fully guaranteed, and Zach Scott did not. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a, a like a policy against players drunk driving. I think Buster only has like a hair of a point here yes. that this isn't equivalent. Like this would if if I don't know. I don't. I don't want to put this into the universe. I'm not even actually going to say a name. But if one of the Mets' better players was drunk driving, in Buster Olney's words, they wouldn't be fired because again, you don't fire professional baseball players. But I think there would definitely be a suspension levied out by the organization. There's almost no doubt about it. Yeah, I, I can't imagine a way where there wouldn't be Which a is, suspension at the absolute least. And that makes this entire situation even more annoying that Buster Olney was being just such a asshole about this and. If you look back through Buster Olney's history regarding the Mets, this is not the first time that he has like firmly contradicted himself in his coverage of the Mets. Not even the first time in the last six weeks he's contradicted himself in coverage of the Mets. Buster Olney was the first person to report mutual interest between David Stearns and the Mets in the beginning of October when they were beginning their uh, their very lofty front office search. Mark gave a great uh, analogy off-air that I'm going to share now. It's as if the Mets were applying to colleges and they just said, fuck it, Harvard, MIT, Stanford. Let's apply. Let's see if we get in. If not, we're going to keep going down the list because we can. There's no rush. Whatever. So Buster only wrote a big piece of an article saying how great of a fit Stearns would be, how much he's heard that he would probably like the job, and how exciting it would be to become one of the most powerful front office executives in all of baseball. And then just a few weeks later, in the middle of October, 
he gave the Mets crap for saying they knew this vacancy would be available and they haven't moved quickly enough in hiring someone. Well, you just wrote an article saying that they should be shooting for the moon because it's such an important position and going after the guy who's probably the best, one of the three best young executives in all of baseball when it was a pipe dream all along. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, like James said, like the the MIT Harvard thing, like while those are the top schools or the top guys and you want those, there's a lot of other good options out there. And we've talked about this. You could go to an Ohio State. You could go to UCLA, Stanford. There's a lot of great schools that are in Ivy League schools. And that's kind of the same analogy I'm trying to do here with David Stearns, Billy Bean, and the guys that the Mets have been taken away from is that if you're going to say shoot for the stars and then the Mets do it and they swing and miss, it shouldn't be a detriment to the Mets like it's being treated because there was really, again, no actual chance that this was going to happen. Especially when a guy like Stearns, we don't even have the concrete proof that he doesn't want the job. A lot of things would actually make sense that he would want the job. And I'm assuming that him not signing a contract extension with the Brewers this offseason, plus them blocking Matt Arnold from interviewing with the Mets and anybody else for that matter, means that David Stearns is ready to have a, a Heimblum-like courtship next season where he's going to go to the best team, the best organization. is going to give him the most money and the most power. So there's really no reason. There's like this narrative got built, also, especially in the back of Buster Olney, that the Mets struck out because they're not actually an elite organization when there's really no telling whether or not David Stearns would have or could have taken this job. And this is, again, there's more contradictions after this. Buster Olney was the first reporter who actually linked Javi Baez to the Mets on July 17th, which was the day that we learned Francisco Lindor was going to miss six weeks with injury. He said he'd be a perfect fit because he could play shortstop for now and then move to second or third when Lindor came back. That was a good thing. The Mets got Javi Baez. He eventually played very well. But Buster Olney couldn't help himself and wrote a scathing article about the uh, condition of the Mets roster and uh, basically just organization as a whole during Thumbgate. In that, he gave Javi Baez shit for not being able to handle a big market and Which responding the way that he did. Hilarious, by the way, because Chicago is the third biggest market in all sports. Yeah, coming, a guy who, who won a World Series in Chicago saying he couldn't handle this type of big market uh, situation. It's just such an absolutely... It's just it's unhinged to say something like that about a player like Javi Baez. And that's what Buster only is when he talks about the Mets. Unhinged. Yeah, and then he's also like, clearly he's been burned by the Mets. I mean, this is a little bit more off topic, but just looking into why it seems like Buster Olney has this disdain towards the Mets organization now is that Buster Olney clearly had a good source at the organization before. And the Mets have been really, really good at keeping things under wraps recently, which is like surprising to say for the Mets organization. He was the guy who said, I'm going to bet the farm, the family farm that they're going to get George Springer. He got burned on that. I think Buster Olney actually was getting fed fake information during the offseason to see if he was going to be a guy who would leak it and put it out public. I think he got caught, and I think he's just been completely silenced and completely X'd out of any news or any information whatsoever. So I think now he basically just, at any chance he can, is going to take the shots he will. And he continues to take those shots. In that same article ridiculing Javier Baez and the Mets' um, handling of Thumbgate, which wasn't good. No. You're, you're a national baseball reporter. You should talk about the fact that the general manager, the head executive of a team, told the star players to stop doing a gesture on the field because it offended the fans and it was an embarrassing mark on the organization. All that was true. But in that article, Buster only gave an unbelievable ricochet shot to Francisco Lindor saying that this season was the mark of four consecutive years of Lindor's downturn, saying that it would be difficult for anyone to project what the team will get out of its highest paid player, Francisco Lindor, in the last nine years of his contract. The last nine years of his contract? He's saying that sentence like Francisco Lindor has already played his mid-30s. He's 37 years old. We have to figure out how we're going to drag him to the finish line, making $35 million a year. The guy's 28 years old. And even past that, Buster only cited Francisco Lindor's OPS Plus in a four-year window, saying that how much he has regressed. When, in actuality, this is something we talked about when we mentioned that asshole from the Washington Post talking shit about Francisco Lindor when he didn't know anything. Buster Olney, I'll admit, probably knows a little bit more than the guy from the Washington Post who's never watched baseball in his life. But he used two samples of one was the 2020 season that was 50 games and one at the, on September 1st, the 2021 season that was just 98 games at the time for OPS+. Plus. OPS Plus doesn't stabilize 100 games, Buster. This is just not good statistical work. And you, it, you really showed yourself because Francisco Lindor raised the OPS Plus by more than 11 points by the end of the season in just that single month. I also think it's funny that in the paragraph underneath the one you just talked about, he talks how Lindor needs to shorten his swing and generate a better approach, in which Lindor probably had the best approach of his career this year at the plate. He was walking more and striking out less. I, it, you couldn't 
be so far off. Like, he had something. He could have said Lindor has been struggling and that he's not living up to the hype right now. So maybe, you know, you don't necessarily think he's going to be that MVP, top 10 player in the league type potential that you thought when you signed him. But he took it to the next extreme, and that's what it seems like Buster Olney's been doing recently, is taking something that does have some validity and pushing it to the next level because it is the Mets. It's also especially upsetting because in the offseason, when the Mets traded for Francisco Lindor, he said this was the marquee move of the offseason, that Francisco Lindor would be an incredible face of the Mets franchise, the face of the new regime of the Mets, and that he was the perfect player for New York and was basically a slam dunk. And then after the Mets traded for him, he would say it would be a massive, massive mistake not to give him basically anything he wanted. He talked about how great Lindor's leverage was and how they were going to be able to work out a great contract together. That's from his January, that was like January 7th, the day that trade went down. It's just over and over and over again, Buster only has these things that he says that are ridiculous. And even if we go back into this exact same article about the Mets thumbs downing and Javi Baez not being able to handle big markets and Francisco Lindor not being able to live up to the last nine years of his contract extension, for some odd, insane reason, Buster only gave the Mets shit for not signing Trevor Bauer. To which, by the way, if you guys remember, the Mets offered Trevor Bauer more AAV, just not as much total money as the Dodgers. Trevor Bauer chose the Dodgers, and now it's a little bit of a moot point because of what's happened in Trevor Bauer's personal life, of course, but the contract that the Mets offered him was just as good as the Dodgers, and he chose the Los Angeles Dodgers, so it wasn't like the Mets were inept or just like kind of met, like screwed something up. They just lost, and that's going to happen at times. The Dodgers were a better team. I mean, I would sign with the Dodgers, too, if the money was the same. But he also gave him shit for signing Taiwan Walker and basically said that it was sort of an accident plan B. I think the Mets, even if they didn't get Trevor Bauer, were probably still looking at Taiwan Walker at this two for $20 million. I'd read the quote. Okay, so here's the quote. Of all the baseball decisions made by the current front office, the best has turned out to be the signing of right-hander Taiwan Walker, a two-year, $20 million deal. But that was sort of an accident. A plan B the Mets pursued after they nearly landed Trevor Bauer was the most lucrative annual salary offered to any pitcher ever. It's just such a backhanded compliment. It's just a shot taken when the shot doesn't really need to be taken. And their broken record, there have been many more shots like this. There was a random tweet that Buster only dropped in June comparing Jared Kelnick to Simeon Woods Richardson. Yep, I have it. Okay. So he says, Jared Kelnick is destined to be remembered as a high-ceiling prospect that the Mets gave away in their win-now push. By the way, May 18th. This is just a random ricochet shot from... Absolutely. This was, this was less than three weeks into the minor league season. Simeon Woods-Richardson maximum... Maxim could have had three starts. Yeah. So, win now push. Another Simeon, which, another Simeon Woods Richardson, who was one of the prospects New York Mets traded to get Stroman, he's quickly developing into Toronto's organization. So, while both of those guys, I think, will end up being very solid players, Kalnick, he struggled this year, but I don't expect that to continue. He's just way too talented. And SWR, we know that guy's ceiling is, is pretty high. He's, he's a pretty awesome-looking player. But... Again, it was so early into the season, I even replied to him and say, hey, Buster, first-time caller, long-time listener, was hoping you could tell me what team Stroman currently plays for. You're talking a lot about free agency, so surely he can't still be on the Mets if you keep bringing up his free agency from last year. I'll hang up and listen, because while the Mets did trade SWR to get Stroman, we got basically two seasons of Stroman. Yes. It, I, I don't understand the whole, like, the slant of, well, they, they got rid of Simeon's Woods Richardson for nothing. Because that's just wrong. On top of that, in regards to Simeon Woods-Richardson, he was traded midseason this year in the package that sent Jose Barrios to the Blue Jays. And he wasn't even a world beater with the Blue Jays and he was with the team. The day before he tweeted this on May 16th, Simeon Woods-Richardson walked four and gave up four hits in five innings against the AA Yankees. He did a seven strikeouts. That's pretty good. But even when you break it down, in the 11 starts that Simeon Woods-Richardson made in the Blue Jays organization before he went to the Twins for the end of the season... He had a 5.76 ERA, again, 11 starts, and he walked 26 batters in 45 innings. That's pretty atrocious, if you ask me. And, like, same thing with Kalanick. Like, we talked about, like, down season. Like, you would have thought that both of these guys were poised to come up and be world beaters off the rip. And these guys had their struggles, had their issues this year, because they are both extremely young. But to treat it as if the Mets got screwed on Simeon Woods-Richardson when Stroman was so good this year, one of the only reasons the Mets stayed competitive is insane. I mean, Strowman, you would have thought Strowman stunk. You would yeah. have thought that this guy was either not on the team or was trash. And that couldn't be further from the truth. It was as if we got Anthony Kay in that trade instead of also trading him for Marcus Strowman. <laughs> You're also just likening Simeon Wood Richardson to Jared Kelnick. Jared Kelnick was consensus top five prospect in the whole show. Everyone knows that. And even though he had a down year this year, 
He got hot towards the end of the year, and I have no doubt he'll be at worst an above-average player for the next 10 years, make us all eat shit. He'll be an all-star. The jury is still definitely out of Simeon's with Richardson. Like, he does have high potential still, and he has a good pitch mix, and this big, big, big boy throws hard. But with that, those kind of control issues in AA at 21 years old, again, not old, it's not young, but like, there's no guarantee that Simeon's with Richardson is going to come to the major leagues and be great. He could. He very well might. I, I mean, I believe that he, there's a very good chance he does. The Twins have decent pitching development, but just to, like, to take that shot on May 18th, there's no reason for it. There's no reason for it. It doesn't make any sense. It's just really trying to get under Mets fans' skin. And maybe... Maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe maybe it's all working. Maybe Buster only just really wants to be spoken about in these circles because he's a his star is fleeting. He's getting older out there. He's an egomaniac. Yeah, he's a fear monger. I mean, especially when you look at the way that he covers other teams around baseball, not the Mets. There was a game when the Blue Jays played the Rays, September fifteenth, when the Blue Jays were in the midst of their massive hot streak, and everyone was talking about the crazy Blue Jays World Series odds. I had a Blue Jays future that placed in August, so I was feeling really good at this time, honestly, but. Bo Bichette hit a three-run home run, the third bat of the game, off of Michael Waka. And Buster Olney said, and I quote, the Blue Jays are the best team in the AL. Like, it, oh, that's all you need to see? A home run off Michael Waka in the first <laughs> inning, and he can tell this team they're the best team in the AL? Why, Buster? There's no reason for that kind of positivity. I know you're a negative asshole. Yeah, Buster Olney should stick to reporting, because that's what he is good at. He is good at reporting news. I'll give him that. You, you can tell me what happened, 100%. But when he starts going into his opinion and giving his thoughts, that's when I really don't care. And I feel like that's what a lot of national media reporters are starting to do now. And I get it. The money is in having an opinion. Reporting news isn't sexy. It isn't cool. Unless you're Jeff Passan, no one really cares. That's why John Heyman's a bum. But your opinion's so bad. You don't have any knowledge. You have no wherewithal to even give a decent opinion. So it doesn't make sense that he just keeps getting to recycle garbage or spew garbage out of his mouth consistently and just seems to be at the Mets' expense always, which... This year, though, because last year, especially in the offseason, he was very positive about the Mets very consistently. Last year, because I wanted to look this up out of fairness, the team that he was taking his shots at were the Philadelphia Phillies, and that's the team we like to both take shots at, too. Of course. Yeah. What's your line? Uh, they're a fourth-place team. What's yes. the other one? Uh, it's a garbage city filled with garbage people. There you go. That one. That one. But... The Phillies also, last year notably, were a little bit dysfunctional. They fired their general manager. There was a three-day window where apparently Zach Wheeler was on the trade block a year after signing a very lucrative and affordable contract. It's hard to do both those things at the same time, but somehow the Phillies did pull that off. And I'll give them all the credit in the world. But even with that, Buster only, I checked, he had one article and one tweet about the Phillies, and I'll quote, dysfunction. He used that word twice, dysfunction, along with the Mets this year is using similar words. One tweet and one article. And the Phillies were doing a similar search of the Mets last year, needing a top executive, and similarly took a little while to do it. And Mark, I want to ask you, what, when do you think the Phillies hired Dave Dombrowski to be their president? I'm just going to say, like, January 10th. That's way too late, all right? You really okay. overestimate. It was December 11th. So, seven weeks from where we are right now, after the CBA will have actually expired, that is when the Phillies hired their top executive. And there was, while well, a smattering of assholishness from Buster Olney. There was not this widespread panic, one article a week, sometimes two, about everything going wrong with the Mets and how every single person is running away from them. We, we know a lot of people probably don't want this job. It's clear at this point, but just be fair, man. Just be fair to all these teams. It's ridiculous you could be a national media reporter and not report fairly about the same team. So I'm telling you, man, he got burned on that Springer thing, and he is going scorched earth trying to make the Mets look bad at any moment because that seems to be the tipping point. Once that Springer thing came through that he did not have a clue about what he was talking about considering he bet the family farm. I'd love to know who has you know custody of that now. But he has flipped the script. He has been negative Nancy. He has been spurred by the Mets. And he is just going scorched earth. So be interesting to see because I'm sure Buster is not done anytime soon. Even this morning, Buster only, again, had that same response about the Zach Scott thing. Is there a zero tolerance policy for the organization in terms of DUIs? Would they cut a player even while swallowing a pricey contract? Of course they wouldn't do that. No. Buster, you know for a fact they wouldn't do that. Nothing it's bad happens. business. It, it is bad business. If so, that is an admirable stance. If not, then there's actually no organizational standard, and it's not really about the DUI. It doesn't have to be only about the DUI why he got cut. He also like didn't do his job. Though. Well, when you add the DUI in, it makes logical sense. Yeah, it's, let me tell you this. If, uh, because Zach Scott, let's just, he's, he was the acting general manager... He is a low-paid guy. He wasn't making big money, right? So let's yeah. compare him to somebody on the Mets that would be like that. If Jose Peraza got a DUI, I promise you Jose Peraza would be cut. Zach Scott is not a star GM. He's not a star player. He's not a star anything. He's the acting general manager because the guy that the Mets hired was a piece of shit. 
There is no reason to treat Zach Scott as an equal to a Francisco Lindor, to a Jacob deGrom, and that's where it doesn't make any sense. It is literally comparing apples to oranges. It's a weird it's a weird hill to die on to go to bat for a guy who was doing something illegal that can put lives at risk. Who you said in an article less than two months ago would be justified being fired. Word for word. Zach Scott, Zach Scott would be justified being fired. So... Yeah, I mean, that's that's probably enough Buster. Yeah, we, we, we've killed almost a half hour going after Buster. All yeah, all right, here. Buster. We're, we're going to let you slide easy on this <laughs> All one. right, Buster. Oh, only 30 minutes. Let's talk about another article, though. The Jacob deGrom one, because it's kind of interesting what was said there. It was an article with Tacoma. It was the first time deGrom spoke in quite a while. He speaks like three times a year. Yeah, so. and it seems to be only to Tacoma, by the way, which is one of our boys. We of love course, yeah. I trust the crap out of Anthony Tacoma. Anthony Tacoma can name my son. I don't care. But he talks about the injury, and he also talks about the season and how he takes a lot of accountability for why the Mets struggled. And just that alone, I fucking love Jacob DeGrom. I mean, he clearly like wanted to be out there. If anyone ever, I don't think anyone did, but if you ever accuse him of dogging it or taking it easy, it's just definitely not the case. He felt really, really bad that he couldn't be out there every five days. He knows his value for this team. He, he knows how good he is. And he knew that that was a huge reason why the Mets fell off in the second half. And he's right, because this was actually the first year in the last few years when the Mets had a great record when DeGrom pitched. The Mets were 10-3 and DeGrom starts this year. That's a pretty incredible winning percentage. And you add, you extrapolate that over the rest of the season, this team may have, along with getting over the 500 mark, could have actually contended for one of these playoff spots. And... We wouldn't be sitting here as Braves World Series champions today, which is just an insane butterfly effect to think about. But one thing that popped out in this article that was very interesting was that DeGrom actually thinks that an MRI that he took in the middle of July aggravated his injury to the point of where he couldn't pitch again that season, specifically saying that the way that he was positioned in the MRI machine, and I think there's no way this is the first time Jacob DeGrom has gotten an MRI in his elbow. Can't be. It's impossible. I'm sure he gets one a month. That'd be, ba- that'd be bad baseball. But apparently he was laying on his stomach, and his arm was elevated above his back into the tube, like upside down, so it was kind of like twisted for an entire hour. That seems uncomfortable. I wouldn't want to do that. Just doing it for like five seconds, I'm like, I feel strange. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's a strange, I don't want to call it a shot, but it does seem like, especially when there was some concern regarding his MRI at the time, remember like, is he getting one, is he not getting one? It seems like there was differing opinions on how Jacob deGrom was going to be cared for, treated, and actually how his elbow was going to be looked at. It's interesting to see him mention that specifically now. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it was weird. But I think there is some positives to take out of this article, and it looks like Jacob DeGrom is going to be ready to go for the 2022 season. Uh, everything seems like he's clear, he's healthy, he's going to start throwing again pretty soon, and that he should be ready to go. Um, you know, the health is still going to be something you have to watch out for. An inflamed UCL, like they said, and Sandy calling it partially torn, even though it wasn't, was like mm-hmm. a weird wording too because Sandy Alderson is definitely senile and doesn't know where he is all the time but <laughs> I, I think the positive to take out here is that it looks like the Grom's gonna be back and ready to go next year but it just again it looks like there's also some weird oversight again by the Mets in the medical department which has been a problem for the last 10 years also it gives me some confidence that the Grom said he would have pitched in the playoffs yes yeah which is cool but again this it, these are problems that we thought were going to go away when the Mets changed ownership and they haven't because the entire front office staff is basically exactly the same something that we have mentioned a few times. That's why we thought that Buster only would have had a point when sweeping changes should have been made in September. But we can all get what we want. And I'm at least just happy that Jacob deGrom has a UCL that's completely intact. Yes, and there seems to be no structural issues, which is huge. Huge. Changes the entire Mets outlook for next year, if I'm being honest. And now speaking of the Mets outlook, let's talk about some guys that, uh, you know, will be a part of the team next year for sure. Basically, almost positive. We got some grades to talk about here. We got five more players here, right? Five? Five here. Five here, we're going to grade him again, and we're going to start off with a guy who... Well, Mets- yeah, just to lead in, we liked our first player grades was our star students. Yeah. Our next player grades were the guys who were okay, but we thought maybe could have been a little bit better. These are the guys who may not have performed up to the standards that we know that they can this season, or what we might have expected of them, and also probably what they expected of themselves. And that is going to start with Dominic Smith. The biggest letdown of the entire season. I think I can say that pretty confidently. Almost definitely. Dom went from a guy who myself and many others thought could be one of the top first base type hitters in baseball based on what we've seen in those last few stretches of play from him. And boy, were we just so incredibly wrong. I mean, I was so high on Dom coming into the year, and he just couldn't have played worse baseball, honestly. And I don't really know why. 
I mean, Dom fell from a cornerstone building block of this organization, this future lineup, to someone who I would be shocked if they have a legitimate role on the team next year. If Dom wasn't as big of a fan favorite, I think Dom's a legitimate non-tender candidate. I think certainly a non-tender candidate, especially when you just look at everything that he can bring to a baseball team, given the roster construction of the Mets. It is kind of hard to find a place for him on this team if he can't hit at all. At all. Like, at all. And, like, it really, he really couldn't hit at all. Like, 2020 was an incredible season for Don. He hit literally everything in sight. He was statistically one of the best hitters in all of baseball. In 60 games, 199 played appearances, he had 21 doubles and 10 home runs. Those are insane numbers. You figure, you extrapolate that over a season, you're looking at a guy who could wind up with, like, 70 extra base hits. Yeah, 30 and 40. As insane as that sounds, it was possible. But this year, in 500 played appearances, Dom had 20 doubles and 11 home runs. And you heard that correctly. He had one less double in 2021 in more than two and a half times the played appearances that he had in 2020, and just one more home run. It's unbelievable, it's shocking, and it's very disappointing. Yeah, he was just really bad. I mean... Dom, when he came up, was a bit of a letdown. He had the high prospect, you know, tag on him, and you thought he was going to be, you know, the next first baseman. Honestly, everyone mm-hmm. thought he was going to be the next first baseman. No one knew anything about Pete Alonso. No one knew anything about Big Pete. But Dom stunk. Dom stunk when he came up, and it was because he couldn't sleep. We found that out. He was a little overweight. He was out of shape. He was just not ready to be a major league baseball player. He figured out how to sleep. Started getting healthy, and he looked good. And then 2021 happened, and he finally got his first shot to really be an everyday player over a full season. And he just, I mean, for lack of a better term, shit the bed. He really shit the bed. And we went through this ad nauseum during the season, that Dom was not taking advantage of mistakes. We talked about his run values on parts of the plate. And for anyone who um, knew, knew the show, run va- you get run values on Baseball Savant. They basically, they, every single pitch that is thrown to a hitter, gets a run value like a great statistician named tom tango invented this statistic about five or six years ago way over my head so that's the best i can explain it but dom had one of the worst run values on any pitch that was in the strike zone including the heart of the plate where it's all the pitches directly in the middle and the shadow of the plate everything that is around the heart and like just depending on the umpire could be a strike could be a ball he just couldn't hit any really thing in the strike zone. He had no sense of when to hit those pitches, where he took too many. He was still fine taking his pitches. His run values on pitches out of the zone were fine, which leads me to believe that he was at least spitting on the ones he should have been spitting on. But he just ended up having such similar statistics to that 2019 season where he was very disappointing, a little overweight and out of shape. He did have a hot streak mixed into that season, but overall he was still not good. His barrel rate was basically the same. His hard hit rate was the same. Same amount of ground balls, same amount of fly balls. His exit velocity on fly balls and line drives dropped back to that level after it entered the elite stratosphere in 2020. So it seems like there's these weird parallels we can like bring from 2019, which is a, a bad thing. Yeah, I, I, I don't know where to go with Dom here because he's not a good outfielder. He's awful. Whatever well, that, you Met fans like to think. That was, that was the next point I was going to make because I'm sure that these struggles were exacerbated by the fact that he is one of the worst outfielders in baseball. One of the worst outfielders I've ever seen. He's pretty he's, awful. He's not an outfielder. He's just simply not an outfielder. We really thought that he was making strides because he made some sliding catches. But all that means is that he can't read the ball off the bat. He doesn't know how to get to that Those ball. Those are routine balls. And <laughs> Dom, Dom Smith throws the, the lollipop into second base from the, from the left field wall. It's just... He's a first baseman. He shouldn't have He is ball. a first baseman. And now that there is a first baseman, it's hard to really find this playing time for Dom Smith. Like Maybe a big thing in 2020 was that he was dh and playing first most days. He was comfortable there. And he does play great first base defense, but we've learned that first base first base defense is not really that important in the grand scheme of things. And also, Peter Alonso turned into a really good yeah, defensive a fine, first base. A fine defender. He went from bad defender to someone who's super acceptable. Like, there's no reason to move Pete off first base anymore, like there was two years ago. It's really hard to find a pathway for Dom to become the player that we thought he was going to be in February, and that's yeah. sad. Uh, even like with the DH next year, which is inevitable. He's not my choice. Absolutely He's just not. not my choice. He, you can sign a guy like Jock Peterson off the street for $10 million. He'll be a much better DH. And this is like the most frustrating part of this, is that the Mets chose to rock with Dom Smith when these other better options were available that wouldn't have handcuffed you even for the future. And That's, you saw the Atlanta Braves do it. Atlanta Braves traded for four outfielders in the, at the trade deadline who none of them could really play center field. The Mets would never even dream of doing something like that because everyone's such good friends already. Yeah, Dom, bad year. He gets an F. I gave him an F as well. There's just no way about it. I, I like Dom as a person. I like he's, him as a guy. He's, he's super fun, yeah. Great clubhouse guy, seems like it, but you got to play at some point, and if this play continues, the future of Dom Smith with the New York Mets is very bleak. 
Definitely. And there have been a lot of Mets fans on Twitter talking about putting Dom Smith in these trade proposals. There's no one in baseball who really wants to trade for Dom Smith right now. Zero value. Oh, like, literally almost none. Like, if you traded Dom Smith, like, you would get either a reliever on an expiring contract who might not be that good, or a guy in single or double A who you've never heard of who has tons of flaws. Who's 24. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's just, there's really no value in Dom right now. In you know, hindsight, should have seen this coming. I think that, at the absolute best, he is a DH or a first baseman with Pete at DH. It, it, we got burned. We got burned on Dom. I'm willing to swallow that pill there and yeah. say that... It sold a bag of goods. Yeah, we, we got swindled here. So that's enough of Dom Slander because, again, he's a nice guy. We love him, but... He's had a very, really bad year. Really we're, bad we're, year. we're grading these guys on their merits for the season. That's what we're doing. And we're, he was one of the worst. Yes. Cookie Carrasco. Let's talk about him. Rough year. Rough, rough year. Rough go for Cookie. I mean, the dude is... He goes through a lot of shit, man. I mean, he had the cancer stuff a few years ago. He tore his hamstring in spring training. He had shit in his elbow. I mean... He went th- multiple setbacks on that hamstring. Yeah, he went through it all. And it definitely wasn't a smooth season by any means. It definitely wasn't a good season either when he was on the field. But I feel like it's also really hard to grade this guy because he wasn't actually given any time for preparation, really. And the fact that he worked his ass off to get back for this team when they desperately, desperately needed like a pitch- veteran pitching presence and someone to just give them at least semi-reliable innings. Like, I give him a lot of credit for that, especially first year out of Cleveland's entire career, up through his whole family, up through his whole life. Like, this is the hard thing for Cookie Carrasco. Tear his hamstring. Tear his hamstring. It wasn't a strain like Jeff McNeil and uh, Michael Conforto had. He tore that thing right off the bone, like a turkey leg. And I think in any other year, Carlos Carrasco just doesn't pitch this year. Definitely. But because the Mets need the pitching so badly, especially finding out the bone chip in his elbow, yeah, was there's just... just no chance he actually pitches. And that also makes sense as to why he did struggle so much this year. you got a bone chip in your elbow. That is not something you really mess around with. That is, that's a painful thing to have in there floating around while you're throwing 95 miles an hour. Especially when you add in the fact that he had to build up from a torn hamstring as a 37-year-old man, like in a couple of months, without really having a spring training at all or any kind of training regimen. And it also just seemed like the whole year, Carlos Carrasco was just trying to figure things out. I talked about this during the game wrap-ups when he was pitching, but he had four different pitches this year that he featured in games between his sinker, his slider, his changeup, and his four-seam fastball. That's a guy who's tinkering. That's a guy who's not really comfortable with all of his stuff. Spring training. That's what you do in spring training. And it seemed like all year long, like he was just... Kind of trying to get ready still. Definitely. And then he had the first inning thing, which we talked about a lot, which is just one of the craziest things I've ever seen in the history of baseball. Just giving up a home run every single first inning, seemingly, for an entire half of a season. But even through all of this like nonsense and all this shit that Carlos Carrasco dealt with, he was still above the 80th percentile in whiff rate, which kind of gives me some confidence still going into next year. Some, a drum that beat a lot this year. Yeah, I, I don't have the same outlook of Carrasco like I did coming into the season. Oh, yeah, I, don't, I don't think he's a good two anymore, but no. I think he'd definitely be a three. Three, four, I'll take him. I, yeah. I would love to see Carrasco be our four. I would love that. I'd feel great going into the season as Carlos Carrasco as a four. He conceivably could be. Yeah. Even I mean, just with the guys who are still part of this organization, not including, I mean, in, including Marcus Stroman, but that remains to be seen. Yeah, but overall for this year, what are you giving him, James? I gave him a C. I think that's pretty fair. I gave him a lot of credit that he worked his way back. And seeing that whiff rate was still, like, basically was career norms. Like, gives me a lot of confidence, again, moving forward. Yeah, no, I think right around that C range is fine. Because, again, the, the dude really wasn't given a fair shot. No, not even close. So, for Mets fans, take it easy. If he stinks next year, it's a different story. Of but, course. you know, he was not healthy, even when he was on the mound. Yes. Let's talk about one of our favorite players on this team, Taiwan Walker, who, shout out to Taiwan, got a follow from Taiwan on Twitter the other day, so maybe we'll get Taiwan on the podcast. I gotta, I gotta, you know, sweeten the prize. Mas- there massage it. Yeah, massage it a little bit. Help him out with streaming. He helps me out. So I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. Absolutely. He's a bulldog. He's one of our favorite players. We talked about how good he was in the first half, and he really was. He was an absolute beast. 25% K rate, 1.06 whip, 2.66 ERA. All-star. All-star. But that also seems like that was the demise of this season was going to Colorado. <laughs> that Mike Zanino home run that ruined the whole thing. Because he just exposed. was not the same after it. His K rate dropped 7%. His whip was Not up. 7%, 7 points. 7% would be a drop of like 7%. Oh, okay, yeah. 7 yeah. points. 7 yeah. points to 18.6%. 1.37 whip, a 7 URA. I mean, the numbers were pretty shocking. And a lot of his expected stats were also just as bad. His XFIP was in the high fives. Like, it's just, he really fell apart at the scene. And what's weird is he did sprinkle in some good performances. He did. He actually, there were a couple starts in September where Taiwan really gutted some out and threw, gave us some very good starts. And again, it's super important to note that he threw, what, 65 innings in the three years combined before going into 2020. 
if this is something you watched in the World Series Game 6, uh, they showed a big chart about um, innings pitched and the, basically the percentage points that they jumped up in a season. And a guy like Luis Garcia, who pitched in Game 6 of the World Series, his innings jumped 1,000%, and you could tell with his stuff. The one thing I will say about Taiwan is also, that his, that's, that's the bullshit stat, but we've got 1,000%. That's yeah. just, yeah, yeah, that's just but, making but it even, But even then, like, they're, the, the innings thing is real for quality of players and for a guy like Taiwan who literally hadn't pitched in three years, basically. I think it was still important to see that he was still thrown in the mid-90s going into September. Like, there was no a doubt. lot of positives mixed in with a lot of shit. And that number was 67 innings. Taiwan Walker threw 67 innings in the last three seasons combined, and this year he threw 160. That's a massive, massive jump. But I do give him credit for those innings. I really hope it doesn't inversely affect his performance next year. But if I would have told you beginning of the season that Taiwan Walker will end the year with a 4-5 ERA... Sign me up. For $10 million. That's kind of, I bet, what the... And and 160 innings. I think that's the big thing. Definitely. The ERA was manageable because... Mm -hmm. Realistically, if you're not scoring five runs a game, it is going to be a little tough to win. Definitely. And you give me 160 innings of that as a guy who's the back end of the rotation, that's a fantastic job from Taiwan coming off of all the stuff. I mean, to add that on top of it, while the while the year wasn't as great as it started, I do think he still ended up with a really nice year. It's just he took a topsy-turvy way to get there. If Tyron Walker would have just been like Cole Irvin the entire year, Tyler Anderson the whole year, these guys were, had very similar ERAs to Taiwan Walker and were qualified pitchers, he would have been like, yeah, sure, sign me up, that's great. But it was just weird to watch him, the fact that he was so good, had Mets fans thinking we really found lightning in the bottle, to being so bad, like, wow, we can't really watch this guy pitch every five days. Just maybe just look look at, look at the hole rather than some of its parts. Because I think if the Mets had the actual depth that we thought they were going to have and probably should have accrued more of in the offseason, Tyron Walker could have taken a three-week, four-week break, and he probably wouldn't have been as bad as he was and probably gotten that ERA into the low fours, high threes, which is like a philosophical debate of how much you want your pitchers to pitch. We saw that a lot during the playoffs, how much we want pitchers to pitch. I'm writing an article right now for Pitcher List about why Zach Wheeler should win the Cy Young because of how much he pitched and how well it was. If Tyron Walker was just a 120-inning guy with 3-6 ERA, he probably is more valuable to the Mets. And maybe next year we're in a position where we actually can facilitate that. Yeah, no, I, I still think Taiwan ended up having a pretty solid year. For me, I'm going to give Taiwan a B. I give him a C plus. Yeah, I think he's definitely better than we expected, I think, still. Yeah. And For 10 mil. Even so, I'm confident going into next year, now that he does have these innings under his belt, that he's going to be able to come back stronger and have a really nice season going into 2022. Or they toasted his arm. It's, there's another, <laughs> and there's the Mets' fault again. <laughs> Which we'll be talking about that all next season. 100%. Let's talk about uh, one of your least favorite guys, the uh-huh. guy that I was a little hyped on, and oh boy, was I wrong, James McCann. Yeah. Your namesake. Yep. <laughs> hey, fuck you. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure James McCann's a good guy. We've heard he's a man of faith. He's a man of faith, but boy, is he not much of a player. No, I mean, talk about how great Taiwan's production was for $10 million. Now you look at James McCann, you're like, damn it, this was not worth $10 million. And James McCann's defense, because I got to defend the guy because he was my dude coming into the year. The Mets used him so wrong. They misplayed James McCann to a T. Yeah, but, like, you, you want a lefty platoon for a catcher? Like, that's not how it works. Well, correct. Yeah, and that's why the $10 million <laughs> valuation is crazy. But, like, against lefties, he was fine. He had a 743 OPS against lefties. That's who he should be facing. He should be facing right-handed pitchers because he just actually has no clue how to hit a right-handed Yeah, yeah no, but usually you're going to face right-handed pitchers. Like, you're not going to have another catcher who hits right-handers because not that many lefty catchers. Give not me really Jason Castro. Give me Jason. Yeah, I'll, I would take Jason Castro as a platoon partner. But you're, we're also, as the one positive for James McCann, you're citing a 120-plate appearance sample and using OPS. It's just nonsense there. <laughs> but if he hit, like, what, six of his 11 home runs against lefties, it's really going to sway those numbers. Like, it's just not that good. And it's... It was just really hard to expect really anything out of James McCann here. This was like giving like a nine-year-old keys to a car and saying, drive, kid. I know you can. James McCann has never had more than 2.2 F4 in a season. James McCann only had above a 95 WRC plus one time besides his 30-game sample in 2020 that got him this contract. James McCann was never a guy who was like, this is a bona fide starting catcher in the major leagues. He was always a platoon guy. He was always a fine defensive player, a good, like, a good like presence. Like James McCann still strikes me as like a leader, a guy with like a good like good mantra. Like, he calls like, a good game. Yeah, he calls a good game. He's like a good guy to have around. He just he look, looks like a catcher. That's a big part of it, I think. And like 
it just was never going to be there. I was, I never, I never saw the possibility that James McCann was going to give us plus value on this contract. And now we're looking at three more years of this down the barrel. Yeah, the wool was pulled over my eyes. <laughs> Big I got, time. I got swindled hard on James let's McCann. Ju- let's jump the catching market on James McCann. The big, uh, the big problem with James McCann, as we talked about with some of the other players on the Mets team, like McNeil, is that he just hits way too many ground balls. He was the king of the double play this year. It was unbelievable. He just kills bugs. And he, especially like how baseball's played now, you, you can't hit ground balls and be successful. It's so hard, and you saw it even with guys who are significantly better players, like Christian Yelich, or even goes to say Josh Bell. Who Juan hits Soto. Yeah, like when you hit a lot of ground balls, Juan Soto's a little different. But Juan Soto, though, has ground ball rate, even for this year, though, was still about 54%. And yeah. that, that game, and most of those ground balls were in the first half of the season when he was really struggling. And to be fair, with Juan Soto, too, he just hits the ball way harder than James you know, of course, too, of So course. you can get away with the ground balls more, but... Especially when there's a less obvious way to shift. And when you're also not slow as molasses. And yeah. the, outfielders, the infielders can't play in the outfield grass and throw you out still. Yeah, so James McCann, if he wants to be successful, he's, he's got to hit the ball in the air more. He's got to at least try to get extra base hits. Definitely, but we're going in the wrong direction. This year, James McCann set a career high in ground ball rate at 52%. Like, you can't have that. It was the 27th highest in all of baseball. And he was actually less ground balls than Juan Soto, which I found incredibly interesting. Hmm. Slightly higher. But, like, James McCann had a 241 batting average on ground balls. I'm not going to talk about batting average very often, but I use this for McNeil because it's very indicative of how guys can become worse when they hit the ball on the ground and the teams shift. And in James McCann's case, you can't run. Like, we got rid of Wilson Ramos, and we got Wilson Ramos with he's, defense. He's just a better defensive Wilson Ramos at this point, which is unfortunate because Wilson Ramos is 75 years old. <laughs> Wilson Ramos just chooses not to run. It's not like he can't. He just doesn't. The man has seen some shit, but he's not an athlete anymore. <laughs> no, yeah. But had Wilson Ramos okay for the kidnapping. We had some kidnapping talk a few weeks ago. Crazy stuff. But more than that, James McCann ground ball batting average. That was by far the lowest of his entire career. And this was also the first time in his career that his expecting average on ground balls, his actual batting average on ground balls are very close together, which would tell you that this was the first year that we actually saw James McCann's true talent in those ground balls. And to tie it all together, he had a 214 Woba on grounders, which is just incredibly low. That's way below replacement level of Major League Baseball player. And that was even much lower than 2018, the year he was non-tendered by the Detroit Tigers. Just to give you a sense of how bad James McCann was at the plate this year. And... I hate to say I told you so, but yeah. I really, I was really all over this one. Yeah, you did. I look like a fool for this one. James McCann was an F for me. He stunk. I gave him a D because he was okay behind the plate. He's an F because he spurned me. Yeah. I'm Buster Olney and James McCann now. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I, I give credit where it's due. Like, if you're going to be vindictive, be vindictive all the time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that was a tough season for James McCann. Hey, can't play worse, right? No, can't get, can't get much worse, I guess. All right. Well, let's move on to a guy that I think will be a positive ending for us here. Rookie pitcher. Not Tyler, Tyler McGill, which uh, he was pretty he was pretty awesome to watch, I think, this year. And I think surprised a lot of people, us included. Kind of came out of nowhere. Didn't pitch above double A right before this year. Single A. Single A. Didn't pitch above single A yet. Never pitched in double A. That's what it was. While he came back to earth, yeah, he was still really a nice piece for us to have. He, there's going to be a sad sentence to say out loud, but he was one of the brightest spots for the Mets this season. Yeah, that is a sad sentence. Literally, but like, there was a time when the Mets were still competitive and still in first place where he literally saved the day. From when he came up on June 23rd until uh, July 28th, the first seven starts of his career, Tyler McGill threw 35 innings, he struck out 39 batters, he had a 2.04 ERA, and he gave up three earned runs or less in every single start. That's the definition of keeping your team in the game. And the Mets were able to win a lot of those games. They probably had no business winning when we did see the true talent of this team down the stretch against good teams like the Brewers and the Braves and the Phillies, okay team, during a time in late June, early July when they were fighting and scratching and clawing, keeping their head above water. It was, it, that was when the Mets' season was at its most fun. You know, it was... He was a big part of it, and I drew a lot of parallels to Lugo and Gesellman from the 2016 season. I mm-hmm. think he was very similar to those guys Incredible. in those seasons. We needed pitching. They came up kind of seemingly out of nowhere as well yeah. and made impacts. Now, is Tyler McGill slotted to be in this rotation next year right off the rip? No, he's going to have not. to earn a spot. But I think at the absolute worst with him, he's in the bullpen as like a, a long kind of stretch guy, maybe a swing man, whatever it is, and can be at least at the start of the season a guy who can make a start every six days to give that rotation a little bit more length and kind of manage the innings better. Definitely. And we gave some shit to Kate Feldman when she said Tyler McGill was a reliever a few months ago. But I do think that Tyler McGill could have an incredibly successful career as his middling reliever. Because the thing that 
he really struggled with was just being able to vary his repertoire enough to keep teams off balance. Like, I remember those back-to-back starts he made against the Giants. Smack. Where the first one, he pitched seven innings, struck out ten guys. Next time, he didn't get out of the third inning. And that just kind of falls on his, like, pitch repertoire. And I think when you see Tyler McGill once, right now at least how it is, you kind of know what you're getting. Definitely. And you saw that with teams that saw him a second or a third time. Especially because, again, he throws six, between 15 and 60% fastballs at a good velocity, but not an elite velocity. But you turn this guy into a 2-3 inning guy in the bullpen, you're gassing all of a sudden 98-99 instead of 95-96. The thing the Rays would do with Tyler McGill. Yeah, three, he, three he, innings. He would be unbelievable. Yeah. He, he, he would do what like, they did with Waka this year. I'm not comparing Tyler McGill and Michael Waka. Don't Fire know anyone think yeah. that. Yeah, or like Rasmussen. Yeah. Where like, I know you have a really good fastball and a really good slider, and the third pitch might really not be there, which was Tyler McGill's changeup, which really had oscillating success this season. But we're going to really bring you in slowly. You're throwing 60 pitches. I want you to throw the shit out of that fastball. They, kind of Drew Rasmussen actually is a pretty good comp. And yeah. Rasmussen has better ride and more moving on a slider than McGill, but it's the same bones there. And also, that changeup just was a little inconsistent, which was the scattering report that we initially got. And even though it didn't look that way at first, my apologies, Joe DeMeo. I gave him some shit on here. But there were times it looked good and times it didn't. And if you look at its, um, its movement profile on Baseball Savant and its spin, spin direction, it was incredibly inconsistent. Usually when you scroll all the way down the pitching page and you see a guy's spin direction, you see like large bars coming off of a clock. Because usually pitchers are very consistent, which is the way they grip their pitches and the way they spin it, ultimately the way they move. Tyler McGill's was not. Tyler McGill was running up the entire area of the clock between 6 and 12, really seeming like he was tinkering with it and not able to get it to locate and move as consistently as he would have wanted. And that's something we can develop. Like That's a fine place to be for Tyler McGill as a rookie who did not pitch above high A this, going into this season. Yeah, we got Hefner. We got Hefner. I would love to see what a full spring training, a full offseason working with a guy like that is going to do because... If this is just scratching the surface with Tyler McGill, I'm feeling very excited about what he could turn into. He's not going to be Jacob Degrom, which no, was, no, no, yeah, that was that was those were jokes. Those were jokes. But I think he can end up being a very competent starter, or at the absolute worst, like you said, a pretty elite reliever. Yeah, or just a guy who comes in for the first three innings, and you piggyback him with another guy for the first three innings. Like, I'm like, you could do that with like, you could pitch Taiwan four innings to keep his workload low early in the season, and throw Tyler McGill for two or three, and suddenly. We're in the eighth inning, and we have Lugo Diaz. Like those are guys who could piggyback on each other and be incredibly successful. A guy like Joey Lucchese is going to come back at the point next year, and he is under contract. Someone we've all forgotten about. Joey Lucchese and Tyler McGill would make great partners to be piggybacking because they each basically have two really. God, Joe Lucchese has one actually. Yeah. But you you make a full repertoire out of those two guys, and you could really throw six, seven innings with two of them combined. Like we really shouldn't be shying away from things like this because we see other teams in baseball very successful. Think about Christian Javier. Come in for two or three innings at a time. I, th- I think about how Wasker Yunoa started pitching this year for the Braves, pitching two or three innings at a time. These guys ended up being able to work up to five, six innings because the stuff played up and they gained more confidence. They gained more ability in those pitches they were good with. But there's definitely this pathway for Tyler McGill to be a very, very good major leaguer in any role the Mets use him in. Yep, and I think it's going to be great. He's going to be very versatile, and I think the Mets are going to use his versatility to their advantage, as they should, because it's a key, key thing that he has for us. I think we both agree he's going to get a B grade. He had a very solid season. Very solid season B. I don't know where this Mets team would have been without Tyler McGill. Which is a crazy sentence. We, we, we would have dropped off way earlier than we did. Yes. He, him. he kept us around. He kept us afloat. And he's got big, thick energy. I yeah, like, he does. I like he the has, energy. He has swag. Which is why he might not even like a three-inning roll. No, no. He, he yeah. wants to start the game. <laughs> and he wants to finish the game. Yes. <laughs> got to respect that. I, oh, I respect that. Wants the ball. Absolutely, he's, yeah. We got a bunch of we had a bunch of bulldogs this year on the mound. Can't deny that. Definitely. It just may, I just want everyone to be on the same organizational page next year when it turn, comes down to roles. We can't, we can't be dinosaurs in our thinking here. No, and that kind of leads into our final thought here, which is President of Baseball Operations talk. There's a lot, but there's also not a lot. There's nothing, but there's everything. So we got some names to throw out you, and this leads into baseball, you know, theories and how the team should be run got Raquel Ferreira who was with the Boston Red Sox forever uh, forever assistant GM I think recently right that's her most recent title she was hired by the Red Sox in 1999 as an executive assistant so Raquel Ferreira was hired five years before the curse of the Bambino was broken just to give you a sense of how long she's been with this team and how much the image and the um, perception of the Red Sox has changed during her tenure and of course she didn't do a lot early she was an executive assistant she ended up working up to um a minor league administrative role in the early mid 2000s, and then became the VP of all baseball administration in 2014, and has been the vice president and assistant GM of the entire organization since 2019. Also worth noting, she stuck around with Heim coming in. Yes, Heim's got to think something of her. And if Heim's if Heim likes you, I like you. If you spend any time with Heim Bloom, you should be you should be interviewing for this job. 
Like, no doubt about it. And Theo Epstein actually credits Raquel Ferreira with implementing the Red Sox system of player development that turned out to be the backbone of that organization during the mid-2000s when she got the minor league administrative job. So she is incredibly qualified. She actually held the highest position of any woman in a front office until Kim... I don't even know. Kim Ung? Kim Ng? Kim Ung, I think. Kim Ung, Kim Ng, Kim Ng got the general manager job with the Marlins last offseason. So Raquel Ferreira is incredibly qualified, and I would love to see her get into the building for this job, get an interview, and even I would love to see her run our baseball operations. But we're in the middle of another, new, another source-off between Mike Meyer and Joel Sherman. Mike Meyer says, no, she's out. Joel Sherman says, yes, she's still in. Maybe you guys will know by the time this podcast drops later today, but... I, I just I hate I hate this not knowing. I just hate the not knowing. Yeah, I hate the source off. It's really it's really frustrating because it seems like nobody has any idea, and that kind of leads back to what we said earlier about Buster Olney. That's just not leaking information. It seems like I guess not. And someone I think I think maybe Jolly Olive had this point a couple weeks ago that most teams when they're doing this they're turning over every stone. So a lot of people are going to decline. A lot of people are going to be involved. You don't know about. But not all of these negotiations are as public as they are with the New York Mets. So with the New York Mets, since we have so many beat reports and so many active people on Twitter, and we have everyone and their mother, including Jack Ramsey, for some reason trying to break news about the New York Mets, you're going to learn more things. And they they might not all even be true. So you really just have to continue to block this out. It's going to happen. Just think of it like Christmas morning. One day you're just going to go down, open the present, we're going to have a GM. You might not like the present. I can say that honestly because we're getting down to like the third level now of these of these GMs that we were interviewing. I don't know what happened to Josh Byrne. Some, someone kill him? Like, someone take his phone? Like, <laughs> yes. where would happen? Where'd that guy go? But just ignore the noise. Raquel Ferrer would be a great hire. I hope she is still in the mix. We don't know, though. And that will bring us to another source off, news that broke this morning, that Billy Epler was being considered for this Mets job. And Andy Martino, one of our favorite guys out there, had a source off with himself, which is something I haven't seen very often. He said that he was in. They said he was out. He said he was back in. Like, where are you going to do that, man? Yeah, I don't want Billy Epler. I don't want Billy Epler. I don't want anyone a part of this front office who was ever associated with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Especially during... Like the last ten years, which has been sheer incompetence. He had, five, had. he had five years in Mike Trout got to the playoffs one time, and it was a wild card game. Yeah, <laughs> or whatever it was, they got knocked out immediately by the Royals that and year. Again, Billy Upler did go to that team in 2015. He was saddled with already some very bad contracts, including Albert Pujols and Josh Hamilton, which two and of the worst. CJ Wilson, and yeah, Dan Heron, oh, CJ Wilson, Dan Heron. At least Dan Heron pitched, but like he definitely did not do enough with this team to uh, warrant consideration for any other jobs. He did. Their minor leagues were built up a lot during this time, though. The Angels have, a, I would say, a decent system. But then you have guys like um, Reed Detmer saying that as a minor league pitcher, you have to put it on yourself when your organization doesn't give you everything you need. And this is something that I've actually heard about the Angels organization through good friend Jabari Blash. Now, not much of a major league career from Jabari, but he was in the Angels organization, became friendly with him, and while sitting down and having dinner with him one night, he talked about, and I can say this now because he's no longer playing baseball, how the Angels, and specifically Mike Sosha, who's gone now, but the Angels organization, Billy Appler was a part of this at this time. What year? Uh, he, got the, was, he got the job in 2015. Yeah, this was like 2018. Oh, yeah, 2017-18. The Angels were so anti-analytics. Apparently, if you talk to analytics in the dugout, or in the clubhouse, Mike Sosha would throw a chair at you kind of thing. <laughs> he was so against it. Now, while Mike Sosha isn't there... It fed through the entire minor league system that the Angels just don't really give you the tools, don't give the players the information to be successful. And to me, if you are a part of an organization during that time, get the fuck away, please. If you are not giving players enough information, this is why, by the way, Mike Schultz was fired. Yes. Because there was just not enough information being shared. And I'm sure why he also wasn't hired. Yes. To be the Padres coach. We got to stay away from these dinosaurs, and it seems like right now Billy Epler is just not a smart decision when, while he might be a name you know, it shouldn't be a name that you want. No, definitely. And I think it's a lot of just Mets fans being tired with this process, which makes sense because it's all that's on Twitter every single day for what we're going on four and a half weeks now. I'm tired of it. I'm very tired of it. I'm so tired of it. I would like to wake up and it be March. I'm I'm so done. I don't care. But that's also why we moved this conversation to the end of the show rather than leading with it for two straight episodes because we really just have to change the narrative here and this can't be something that we harp and focus on forever because it just can't. It just really, really can't. It's important, but like I've just had, I'm done with it. I'm so done. Figure it out. Don't even tell me. Tell me until they, they actually hire somebody. Absolutely. I'm, the, I'm right there with you, brother. We also want to give a quick shout-out here as we're ending the episode to Joseph Stax' son. Uh, we didn't get a name for the son, but it's his birthday coming up here. Happy birthday, my guy. Uh, Union County, brother. Live in South Plains. Yeah, happy birthday. You know who you are. Yeah. Nine years old. 
Enjoy. Nine? Yeah. Nice. Nice. Good ninth birthday. Great birthday. Nine. That's the best time of your life, man. Go out. Go outside. Get your knees muddy. Go play some tackle football with your friends. Nine was leading into 2006, which was my 10th birthday, yeah. as well as yours. Yeah. That was a good year for the Mets. Great year so. for the Mets, honestly. After a disappointing 2005, when the Mets had a big acquisition, things really fell apart when we thought they'd be good. Spin zone. There you go. Spin, Spin zone. It's all coming together. It's all coming together. That's going to wrap it up here for episode number 59 of the Mets Up Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at Mets Up. Won't be a YouTube video here, but if you want to watch on YouTube, Mets Up Podcast, you can find us there. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Drop James a follow on Twitter, Jeter Had No Range. Me, at DraftNeckMark with a C. And yeah, it's got all we got to talk about here. We're out in Arizona. Going to watch some baseball here in the next couple hours. Let you know how Brett Beatty's looking. Yeah. We'll see you on the next episode of the Mets Up Podcast. Peace out. See you guys later. Thanks for listening.